Hello everybody and welcome back to Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is just as a reminder, this is the podcast where we're looking at the small yet great moments in movies and breaking them down. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we're back for episode three. This week we are going back in the past a little bit. We're going to be talking about films from the early 70s. One of the great great time periods for for film so yeah this this was your idea i wanted to ask you is there any particular reason you were like because we were doing the 2010s the early and then the late was there any particular reason that you were like not only do you want to jump out but like the 1970s in particular well i think i just wanted to go back a little bit just to get a little bit more of the breadth of what we've been doing lately because yeah we've been sticking pretty modern but it's true i mean the 70s there's a good argument to be made that this is one of the strongest periods of in filmmaking, I think. Mm-hmm. This, I'd agree. Certainly in American <clears throat> filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, uh, that rare moment, it's seldom been replicated of like where the sort of art and commerce of Hollywood were kind of came together in a beautiful way where a lot of the most popular and successful films of the era were also these personal, introspective, character-driven uh, in some ways, art house movies that were also still entertaining to a wide audience and were blockbusters. Like, this is more late 70s, but it's kind of crazy to imagine a movie like The Deer Hunter coming out today and being, like, one of the highest grossing films of the year. Yeah, that's true. I guess it sort of happened with American Sniper, but that film's a bit less ruminative than uh, than Deer Hunter is. But yeah, I mean, it's just an, an interesting and unique time for... Um, did you consider... I mean, we... I think it's not probably too much of a surprise that both of our films are more or less like American studio productions. Um, Did you consider any uh, foreign language films or anything outside of that bubble? Uh, Not for this time period, no. There's there's not a whole lot that just stick out to me. What about you? Uh, I kind of thought about Agare, The Wrath of God uh, and Igmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, but they're both... Because I thought, like, it'd be cool to have something that's not, like, a new Hollywood movie, just right. for, you know, variety's sake. But I really had a hard time. First of all, those those movies I've only seen once. And they're both, in their own way, like, really sort of heavy films that are a lot to take in from a first viewing. So I can't even, like, I can't necessarily pinpoint in my memory, like, little moments so much as I can just the general enormous feeling. So I was like, okay, well... Maybe I'll just stick to <laughs> the American <laughs> movies that I've seen yeah, a bunch. Stick to the ones that we that we know well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think there'll I'm be. Excited. I think there'll be lots of times for for some of the more uh, some of the foreign films that we're more acquainted with in other time periods. I think, mm-hmm. especially because I know you're a big Kurosawa fan, and um, and I think the '60s were pretty big, especially with with uh, French films and everything like mm-hmm. that. So. Perfect. For sure. Okay, well, let's... We'll stick with the Hollywood movies down now while we're building our audience. That's right. And then we'll hit them with the foreign <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. well, I think you'll make a few more deeper cuts than I will. I'll be the, I'll be the populist host and you'll be the deep cut host. host I there think you go. Happen. We each have a role. That's right. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's start this off. <clears throat> I wanted to go right back to 1970, so the beginning of our time period, because I want to talk about M.A.S.H., because I love MASH. I am a big fan. And the moment I want to talk about is a line uh, by Elliot Gould, who plays Trapper John in the movie. And his the line is simply, 
cut it out in Volmer. And of course, obviously, that needs some setup. So in this scene, <laughs> in this scene, this is actually, for those who know MASH, you'll know the characters I'm talking about. But for those who don't, there's there's a whole bunch of characters in MASH. It's a, it's a big... Uh, a big cast of, of crazy creatures basically running around this uh, <laughs> military hospital. But Trapper John is one of the main characters along with Hawkeye. A lot of people are more familiar with the TV show, I, I would imagine. It kind of seems to have overshadowed the, the movie a lot. But Trapper John eh, gets into a fight with Frank Burns. And Frank Burns is kind of like the foil of, of the other characters. And he's kind of the jerk and, and nobody likes him. And in this, the scene right before this, he loses one of, a, one of their patients. But he makes one of the orderlies, one of the young kids, feel like it's his fault when really it wasn't at all. And Trapper John saw this. And so he pulls him over into, into the storage room and knocks his teeth out, basically. Knocks him out to the ground. <laughs> at the same time... The um, this commanding officer of of the camp, I guess you would say, the medical camp. He's touring around Hot Lips Hooligan, Hulahan, so who's you know who's a very uh, prim and proper army army woman that that joins the camp. And as he's touring her around, they walk in and they see Trapper John knock out knock out Frank and. And so there's a whole big thing about this, right? And so they get in a big argument. And uh, and so Henry, who's the Henry Blake, who's the commanding officer, he, you know, he, uh, he argues with Trapper for a while. Like, how could you do this? And Hot Lips is like, what is going on in this hospital? And he says, you're under arrest. We can't have this happening. You're under arrest. And then as they walk away, he's like, Volmer, put this guy under arrest. He's one of the you know, one of the lackeys there. And Trapper John just just completely waves him off and just says, come on, cut it off, Fulmer, and then just walks <laughs> away from him. The reason I love this so much is because it's it's it just encapsulates the movie's spirit, which is a very cynical, very anti-authoritary movie. Basically, anybody in the movie that takes anything too seriously, and in this case, particularly the army too seriously, is to be ridiculed. And Frank Burns and Hot Lips are kind of the two main characters that, that get the brunt of this. Um, but even even Henry Blake, who's the, the commanding officer, he's, you know, nobody takes him seriously at all. And he knows it and he doesn't really care. He's just kind of putting on a show for, <laughs> for the new recruit. And But I just love that, you know, he just... He's put under arrest and he just ignores it and walks away. Like, I just, I love that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I like what you said about how it, like, uh, is like a perfect microcosm of the film uh, and embodies what the film is about, the, those anti-authority themes and, all, themes, and also that um, for as solemn as the subject matter that the film deals with, it's set ostensibly during the Korean War, but is really pretty much pretty clearly like about vietnam yeah uh and about these uh army surgeons um how much it doesn't take itself seriously or uh and how that's reflected in the comedy because remember the first time i went to watch this and I, I knew it was one of those sort of famous acclaimed comedies and i kind of had it in my head that it was going to be kind of a dramedy 
like right. sort of you know a lot of funny parts and a lot of comedy but also really serious or it was going to be more of a Doctor Strangelove-esque satire where it's very funny but is also like all of the humor comes from this sort of political critique and then I saw the film and it's not really either of those things it's just kind of this uproarious I mean you can read political subtext to a lot of the comedy but a lot of what makes it so fun to watch is how uh, it refuses to take on the solemn we're making a movie about war and need to treat it seriously that it is uh just kind of this um uh that it is just really funny and it doesn't uh i don't know feel the need to um uh sort of i don't know i'm kind of at a loss for words here but it doesn't feel the need to treat the material with dignity just because it's sort of an important subject matter yeah it doesn't and I temper think that, its humor at all yeah yeah that that's that's perfectly it yeah. um Interesting. I know you're a big MASH fan. Did you have, uh, was this like an easy choice for you or yeah, this was did you kind of struggle? Yeah, this was an easy choice for you. No, I, like MASH, I mean, there's, there is, again, great movies like this. There's lots of moments we can, we can point out. But this one, it stands out because A, it's hilarious. B, Elliot Gould delivers it so well. Like he is, he is so good in this movie. And then, and C, I think just because it, it does get to the spirit of the movie. Because you're right, it does... It is a crazy movie, but I think there's a real rebellious spirit behind it. Mm. It's almost it's almost anarchistic in a, in a, in many ways. Like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Like the screenplay, the characters in it. Any character that the movie basically sees as the protagonists, as the heroes, are the ones that you know think the army as a whole is ridiculous. Doesn't doesn't pay it any mind really, and just they care about their work. Like they're very serious doctors. Uh, Mm -hmm. But anything around that, they're there to be doctors. And that's very clear. They have no time for anything else. And I think uh, something else like talking about, like they do take their work seriously. It kind of reminds me at the end of the film when um, I can't remember exactly. I think the, the Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland characters are like, they're granted leave. Like they're able to, leave the front line as it were and it is like one of the few moments that's not like played for yucks like it's genuinely like this kind of sobering moment so there are those sort of glimmers of seriousness but it's never the film's never stifled by it and that scene i think gets to that uh quite well and i'm glad you highlight elliot gould in particular because his performance is like just extraordinary donald sutherland and he are such a perfect comedic pair oh, yeah. i don't know they're if they so did good. any other movies together but they're uh just so quick and so they have such great chemistry in this and the whole cast is fantastic like it's robert altman so it has that rich ensemble yeah. but they are so clearly the anchors of it um yeah great movie great pick yeah yeah i i, I hope that anybody out there who hasn't seen mash i mean it's it's very sharp biting humor it's not it's not for the faint of heart like they they go for the jugular in a lot of moments but um, check it out because I just I don't want this one to get lost to time and mm-hmm. a, a, the TV show does overshadow it but the Have TV you seen sh- the show yeah we okay. I, I I watched it as a kid because my parents watched it all the time interesting the, the show is it is more of what you say what you were thinking this was going to be where it's more of a dramedy mm-hmm. and it does you know play up the sentimentality a little bit more. It's very, it's got a very different tone from the movie. Fascinating. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. How a bit schmaltzier, kind of? Yeah, it is. 
Mm, I've never seen the show. I I love the film, yeah. but I, hmm, I didn't know the tones were so different. They, I feel that they are. Yeah, I think the I think the movie's humor is is just a lot a lot more cynical, and I am mm-hmm. perfectly okay with that. Yes, it's good you mentioned that it's like a biting movie because like it's kind of like there's even been a lot of like modern first time viewings of the film that are like kind of put off by how mean-spirited the movie is because right. it, it really is mean-spirited it is, in a lot yes. of ways um which I, I think it's it's consistently funny so i for me so i don't really mind but yeah i guess that's something worth noting if you haven't seen the film it does not pull its punches and and it doesn't uh for better or for worse it's not really concerned about uh falling under the parameters of good taste which is part of what makes it feel so freeing and is really essential to that anti-authority right streak that you mentioned and as when we talked about the 70s i think this is a movie that had to be made when it was made mm-hmm. right because this was a time where the Hayes code was ending and and filmmakers are really experimenting with what they could do and what their limits were and we see that mm-hmm. a lot in the 70s yeah and, and matching the sort of uh the fact that it's uh that rage at the vietnam war that was really right. like had really come to a boil by then which is also why like the film pretty much has to really be about Vietnam, despite like one uh, sort of line of uh, voice, essentially voiceover. It's played over the radio about how it's set in Korea because the stern anti-authority uh, ideology of the film, it's not that it's inapplicable to the Korean War, but it's so much more applicable to the attitudes towards Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's a good pick. Speaking of pushing the limits of filmmaking, <laughs> let's go to your pick. Yeah, so uh, my pick comes from A Clockwork Orange, um, which is obviously a a film full of uh, horrific levels of violence and chaos that would not have been possible just a couple years earlier, Um, which is, I guess, a quick aside. Like, when I first saw this film, I didn't really have that context, so the degree to which it was shocking, I don't think I really appreciated till a couple years later. But uh, the moment I'm highlighting is actually one that's... Uh, a lot more subtle which is more of a setting than it is a moment which is the Karova milk bar which is um, a setting the the film shows twice once in the opening scene and once a little bit later where uh, Alex and his gang are just hanging out um, plotting what they're going to do for the evening and uh, in this really interesting setting and so there's sort of multiple levels to why I think this is such a um, great detail that um, become more apparent the more you think about it so at first, it's just the Karova Milk Bar. It's just a weird, <laughs> unique location that I think captures the sort of strange, kind of quirky, but also kind of threatening world that A Clockwork Orange exists within. Um, so that just kind of catches you off guard, and especially with like the bizarre dialogue that the film has, which comes from uh, the novel, I believe, that like is this strange sort of uh, version of English where like. Like, one of the lines is, like, we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Rizudocs about what to do with the evening. It's just, like, you understand what it means, but it's just slightly, like, just off and bizarre. Um, And then you see, like, the fountains of milk that they uh, get from are, like, shaped like these naked women. And the milk comes from their breasts. And, again, at first, it's just this sort of overwhelming sensory detail that just kind of throws you. But the more that I think about that location, the more poignant it strikes me as a choice uh, certainly the hypersexualized uh, women figures in the bar are somewhat comical in how exaggerated and over the top they are. 
but you start to peel back at that as an idea, and it's not that far removed really from the hypersexualization in modern culture surrounding advertising and and especially like food and especially like a bar alcohol consumption. Not that they're consuming alcohol, but it is pointedly a bar. Right. It's not no, really that point. different. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> Which point. is something that Kubrick would develop even more with uh, AI before Spielberg took that film over. Um, but so then there's that detail. But then I start to think about, wait a minute, like it's a milk bar. And at first it's just kind of this quirky idea, but it's the more I thought about it, it's like that's actually a really great indicator to how dystopic and awful this science fiction setting is where milk is now such a valued and precious commodity that going to a milk that you can go to it like you would a bar and have like you know a beer like it's this sort of um prestige thing to do and sure enough some of the patrons especially in the second scene seem like these wealthier older people um so again like it it never makes a big deal about like uh, stressing this horrific dystopia in a way that other sci-fi films of the 70s would really emphasize. But you start to think about, hmm, why would milk be seen as this precious currency? Well, maybe it's in short supply and now high demand. And even the name Korova, I, I looked it up. Korova is just the Russian word for cow. Oh. So it's like, <laughs> it's just this, it's this shallow effort to make it seem a lot more classy and right. prestigious when it's just milk, like saying cinema instead of film which I do and it works, but it, it's, it's, it's such a rich detail. Um, and then the final reason I just love this as a little moment is because I love milk and the idea of hanging out in <laughs> a classy joint that serves good milk makes me happy. That's, um, you know what? I never really thought of the idea of a milk shortage. Like, and then that's part of the film, but that makes perfect sense. Cause I, I, I do read a lot of science fiction and th there's lots of cases where, they talk about meat, for example, in short supply. And so it's a, it's really rare to get actual meat from an actual animal rather than just manufactured meat. I, I, and yet I never put two and two together. I never thought, hey, there's a milk bar because it's rare. And I just thought it was a quirky detail. It's something that only came to me when I was prepping for this podcast. So Because I was <laughs> yeah. just like, I just want to talk about the milk bar because I want to hang out there. It is. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a good point that how it ties into that sci-fi trope of like resource scarcity and how I think what it points to as well is that we automatically think of like oil, water, meat, like the sort of the big things, but even just like, you know, milk, which is not something that we need, but is something that I think would be a great loss to a lot of people if we didn't have it. Like it, it sort of reflects how like... I don't know, a crisis in the future. It's not just the sort of essentials that would go, which obviously is like more important, but the sort of little things that you take for granted. Um, and I think it's just a really rich uh, detail in the world building. And a good indicator of like, because Clockwork Orange doesn't really announce itself as science fiction the way that like 2001 A Space Odyssey does. Right. But you start to pick at details of the world and it's like, this is either taking place in an alternate history or in a future version of um, Britain. Uh, either way you read it, it works, but the world is too bizarre to, for it to be just, you know, it's not a reflection of ours. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's a, like when I think of Clockwork Orange, I think of the milk bar almost immediately. Like that's my first image that comes to my head. Especially the very first shot. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, that's a good way to start a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this the music and the, the pullout. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah good good pick i yeah that's it's such a unique setting it does 
It does, though, harken back for me to kind of the set design of 2001, like the moon base. I always mm-hmm. kind of re- relate the two ideas there because that moon base is kind of a neat, has neat production design with its how it's decorated and everything. And so I, and those, I think those, he made those two movies back to back, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. There's I actually a really on the nose reference to 2001 when Alex is in the record shop. One of the albums that's like center of the frame in one shot is the 2001 score. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Just like, man, that's such confidence. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> when Michael Bay puts the Bad Boys 2 poster in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, it's not looked at with the same, <laughs> ah, the great master is referencing his own works. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Should we move right. to the next one? Yeah. What do you got for pick number two? Uh-oh. Okay. Next one I'm going to talk about is... Probably the biggest movie of this time period, I would think. Yeah, I think so. That would be The Godfather. And the moment I could pick from The Godfather could be the movie. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's full of great moments. Like, The Godfather is just so astoundingly good. I watched it about a week or two ago, and I just keep getting blown away by, by just how wonderful of a movie this is. And how it basically builds an entire world of characters in under three hours. It's it's amazing. <clears throat> Something that TV shows try to do over multiple seasons, mm. it does in less than three hours. Anyway, the point I want to talk about this time <laughs> is going to be uh, Enzo's hands. When I say that, Dan, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, uh, the hospital. The hospital, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the moment is in front of the hospital where Vito Corleone, the godfather himself, is recovering and Michael goes to visit him and realizes that all the cops and everybody is basically gone. And he's he knows what's up. He's like, well, there's the cops have been paid off and there's going to be a hit and there somebody is coming to kill his dad. And then somebody comes into the hospital and it turns out to be the baker, Enzo. And Enzo is basically just coming to, you know, pay his respects. And he's, he's just a baker. Like, it's not anything underhanded. It's not like he's secretly working against them. He's just a baker and he just happened to show up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or right time, as it turns out. And so Michael basically takes Enzo out to the front of the hospital and they pose and they're basically looking like they are the bodyguards. And so when, when the gangsters who are supposed to go kill him show up, they're scared off because they realize, Hey, this isn't how it's supposed to be. There's not supposed to be anybody here. And basically all they do is they just stand there in front of the entrance. They've got their, they put their hands in their pockets to make it look like they've got guns. And that's it. And that's enough to scare them off. But what, what sells this moment so well is because right after that, Enzo basically takes out his cigarette right away. And his hand is shaking so much that he can't even light his own cigarette. 
And up until that moment, like he was looking stoic, he was looking just, you know, straight faced, like he would be a gangster. And and at that point, you realize just how absolutely frightened that he is. And I just, those small details just really work in a movie like this. Mm -hmm. They work so well in its favor. And And the other crucial, oh, sorry, go go for it. Just the other, Michael's hands by contrast, where he's totally rock solid. And there's a moment, there's like a beat where he looks down and he realizes like, you know, he's, he's totally calm. He's got full control. And it's kind of this like, it seems just like a little moment of character at the time. But when you reflect on it, it's like, oh, this is him realizing that like, he's born to do this. Right. And this is kind of the turning point for him. This is where he basically is with his father at this point. And he actually says that like right after this scene, he goes to his father and he says, I'm with you now. Mm-hmm. And that's where Michael's character turn happens. And because mm-hmm. he makes the decision, I have, well, you know, he does make the decision. It's an easy one to make. If you were in that position or I was in that position, it's an easy one to make because you're protecting your father. But at the same time, he's subconsciously making that decision to stick with him in this gangster life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's haunting stuff. Um, it's also interesting. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Mario Puzo's novel that the film is based on. No, I haven't. It's an enthralling read. It's it's <clears throat> one of the best examples of the book is not always better, but it is like a page turner. And one detail that's interesting is because like right after this is this with McCluskey, the corrupt police chief who punches Michael and breaks his nose. And in the book, Michael is like disfigured from that for like the rest of his life. Um, it's much more, whereas the movie, there's a couple allusions to it, but he's still like handsome Al Pacino, which right. I think is the correct choice. I think the book really overemphasizes that. Like, I mean, it's a punch, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, where he's just like, there's so many like lines about like the awful <laughs> grotesque face that Michael has afterwards. But I think just as a way of like very much externalizing that internal idea of like this being this turning point where he can't go back to who he was. Right. Um, which again, I think the book version is a little extreme, but I think it's a good indicator that like you're right on the money when you talk about this as this uh, turning point. And it's wonderful that it's expressed all just through like there's there's dialogue in other sections that we can use to inform that moment, but the actual moment itself with the hands, there's not a word. Right. It's beautiful. And it tells you everything you need to know about this character that you just met. It tells you everything you need to know about where Michael is at in his life right now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I really love about this which i think is just great storytelling is that even though we have never seen enzo before we know who he is because in the very first conversation in the entire movie no it's not the first conversation i think the undertaker is the first conversation yeah it's but the, it's one of the earliest it's one of the earliest yeah. ones where somebody comes to don corleone and he's basically says that his daughter wants to marry Enzo the baker and can he do something to keep him in the country so that they can get married and so it's a quick conversation that they have but it establishes this character that ends up showing up later it's just such a good callback because a once you hear that he says once he says he's Enzo the baker that triggers something in your mind oh yeah oh Enzo is here because Mm of the dawn right and so you know everything you need to know about his loyalty because you know that 
it's because of because of the Corleones that he's still in the country. And so you know that he's on their side, even though you've never met him before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the other thing, too, that's so amazing about the film is how layered the screenplay is, not only in, like, characters and plot and theme, but also in, like, paying things off. Because there's a lot in the film, like the, you know, the initial scene with the uh, the guy, like, wanting Enzo to stay in the country, where, like, that could have just been it, just to show right. the Don doing his business. But it actually it pays off, you know. The, the bit with, uh, you know, the infamous horse head scene, which is, like, the greatest scene ever... Um, <laughs> It can, it could have just existed in the film to be, this is to show that as much as these are like romantic figures and they're likable characters, there's like a real dark side to them and what they do, but it pays off again. That character comes back later in the story in the Las Vegas sections. Like there's so, which I guess starts to drift away from our sort of concept of the show as being about the little moments, but it's just such a well-oiled machine of a, of a script where every detail like has a payoff and matters. Um... You know, that like enthralling opening wedding sequence sets up everything that's going to happen in the film and without really feeling does. like it's feeding you, um, you know, uh, setups. It's it's brilliant. It really oh, is. I love this movie. Yeah. Good pick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll be talking about The Godfather again at some point. I don't doubt it. Um, I mean, they're films, like you said, that they're like, they're full of iconic moments, but they're so layered in character details that you can find really multiple little moments in almost a single scene. I love Roger Ebert's review, retrospective review for The Godfather. I think it's for part one, but it might be part two where he's talking about, you know, there's a lot of movies where that we love where we love the characters, but it's usually like one or two. How many films can you name like a half dozen characters and all of them are like, like so familiar and fresh to you? And yeah, I mean, it kind of stands alone in that regard. Right. Um, the only other stuff I can think of are things like, uh, the Lord of the Rings or to a lesser extent the MCU just because there's so many movies that all these characters get so much more time but as far as just like a single film it, it's peerless yeah I agree agree alright there's actually a video essay on the Enzo hand scene um, oh is there <laughs> I think it's called like my f- uh, 15 favorite seconds from the Godfather or something huh. um, By I think it's by Thomas Flight I might have that wrong but it's really good. Um, so All if right, you like well, this yeah, scene. Now i got to check that out. <laughs> uh, okay. So I guess I'll jump into my second pick, which is also a movie about Italian criminals. So I guess it fits. <laughs> I, I try to avoid putting Martin Scorsese in my list for the third week in a row. Well, but you, uh, you failed. <laughs> my will is weak. <laughs> Scorsese's back. Um, my moment's from Mean Streets. Uh, so Mean Streets, it's... I think a lot of people erroneously think of it as a gangster movie because of the title and the poster and the fact that there's this myth that Scorsese only makes gangster films. And it's not really. It's about characters who are on the periphery of that world, but it's really more of a coming-of-age story. And most of it centers on the conflict between Charlie, played by Harvey Keitel, and Johnny Boy, played by Robert De Niro. And Charlie, who's like trying to be... Uh, trying to grow up, essentially trying to be what his uncle needs him to be, trying to be a good earner. And then Johnny Boy, who's kind of this um, renegade, anarchic screw-up who, you know, blows his money all over town and owes everywhere and is just kind of a walking catastrophe. But they're And Charlie knows that and he tries to deal with that, but they're also really close friends. 
And there's this wonderful moment where they're walking down the street together and they're kind of just having some laughs. And then um, they pick up each a trash can lid and start kind of dueling with them and smashing them into each other. And I love this moment for a lot of reasons. One, I just think on a, the simplest level, it's such a pure expression of friendship and love in like the just the sort of like willing to be so dumb and ridiculous <laughs> together. Um, it shows, I think, how torn Charlie is because he is trying to be what he thinks he needs to be. And yet he's also in so much of the rest of the film, but is also really compelled still by Johnny and by his friendship with him. And I also just think in a simple way, it really gets to the tragedy at the heart of the story, which is that at its core, these characters are basically kids. Like as much as they're on the periphery of the gangster life and they have guns and they owe money and they do, uh, you know, less than legal things, they are kids. They're not especially mature or educated or, you know, and they're at a place where they should be kind of just able to enjoy their lives. And it makes the the darkness at the film, because again, it's not a gangster film, but it does end in a moment of violence and the sort of specter of violence surrounds the movie. Sorry, my cat's knocking over boxes in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they'll stop. Um, but uh, it just makes that so much more profoundly sad. And I love the way that like it's just a small little detail in the character interactions that emphasizes both how immature they are and how the tragedy that they're coming towards. So Yeah, it's neat how little moments like that can do so much for for building the characters and and for establishing ideas like, you know, you know, their their youth being in conflict with, with what's happening in the film. I love when, when you can have little moments. Small details like that just establish so much. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, the basis of what we're trying to do here, I suppose. But Yeah, and I think in a way it's the basis of your 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 moment with Enzo and Michael just contrasting their behavior like it's it's and that's the other thing it's behavioral and it's instinctive it's not a character thinking about who they want to be and how they present they're just responding and showing who they are um yeah and i don't know and i think in a way it's kind of like it gets to the playfulness at the heart of that film and out of the heart of a lot of scorsese's films they're because they're kind of a recurring theme i think in his movies certainly in something like this or in age of innocence it's like the 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 conflict between who characters want to be and what they think they need to be, um, which is something that doesn't really get talked about as much in Scorsese's work. And I mean, it goes, we could really go into this and talk about how it reflects like the sort of Catholic guilt that runs through his movies. And there's a lot of that in Mean Streets. Um, It's rather telling too that the voiceover when Charlie is praying in church is not Keitel's voice, it's Scorsese's. Um, But I think it all gets sort of folded into this little moment of, dueling trash can lids um it's great and and there's something about uh like you said the conflict between who they want to be who they are basically Mm -hmm. versus who they're trying to show to be so would you say that they that's a good example of them being who they want to be because it's just the two of them and then does that contrast a lot with the relationships with other characters? Does it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's like, there's an intimacy to that moment and to other scenes where it's either just the two of them or it's like a very small circle. Whereas in other scenes where 
there's multiple characters including charlie and johnny and charlie feels like he needs to be kind of the leader and the responsible one who keeps things on track uh like the the great scene where they go to uh get their money from this guy that's like uh who owns like a pool hall and a fight breaks out because johnny won't keep his mouth shut um and then he gets called the mook and they don't know what that means but they're very upset about it uh yeah i mean that's that's a huge point like the sort of which is something else again that the movie doesn't really say but it just shows you how these two behave differently when it's the two of them and you kind of even though you understand that johnny is this screw up it's easy to really relate to him more and be a little bit almost angry at Charlie for it's like, no, you're not like this. You're pretending to be like this because you think you need to be, but I know you're my friend and you should have my back and you're not right now. Even though like you can step outside of that and be like, also relate to Charlie and be like, Johnny, just shut up for God's sake. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's the other great thing is like the way that the scene humanizes both of them so well, it's so easy for as a viewer to latch onto both of them and root for both of them to be uh, happy despite the fact that their goals really conflict. Right. So. Yeah, so it goes a long way to building their own relationship between the two of them as well then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So there we go. So you have your Scorsese pick, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till next week. What yep. will it be? All right, I wanted There's to There's only talk... one Scorsese film I can choose for next That's week. That's right. Though, so <laughs> options are limited. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my next pick, I I went with Chinatown, 1974's Chinatown. And I picked the moment where Jack Nicholson, um, or Jake Geddes, this is his character, who is the private detective, he's following somebody and he wants to, he basically is going to, he's followed him to this place and he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. So he takes a stopwatch like a a watch and he puts it under the wheel of the car and then he's the plan is to come back later and once that car drives over the watch at the it stops at the time where when he left right so that jack nixon knows exactly when he left that place i wanted to pick this moment because i kind of wanted to to frame it in the idea of re-watching movies (laughs) so so bear with me here because Chinatown is a movie that I saw a long time ago when I was really getting into to movies and I wanted to, you know, watch all the big uh, notable movies and I went through a whole bunch of them. And, Cl- and Chinatown was one of the ones that just kind of, I watched it. I said, okay, I, I saw that now. I don't, not entirely sure what, how big a deal it is. I'm sure, Jack Nicholson's good. Um, I get the basic gist and then I moved on. Which I think happens quite often. But there's this idea, I guess, that we... When a movie like this is has such a reputation after so many years, there's got to be a reason why it's lasted. Right? Because there's probably... Think of all the movies that came out in 1974 and how many are still remembered and beloved today. There's got to be a reason for it. And so that's why I... I like the idea of rewatching movies because sometimes you don't get it the first time. And Chinatown was absolutely that for me. When I watched it again, many years down the road, then I got it. It clicked. And what really grabbed me with Chinatown was that it wasn't just, you know, the, the overall story and, and the characters relationships. 
which is kind of what I watched it for the first time. But I think it does a really good job with just the basic private detective mystery. And because I think a lot of these prestige movies that have to do with a mystery, they kind of wash the actual mystery aspect under the bus a little bit and, and just kind of use it as a, as a linchpin, I guess. But Chinatown, Robert Town's script for Chinatown does a really good job of um, adding in all these details and almost making it a procedural film in, in a lot of ways. And the watch is just one of those moments that just grabbed me the, the next time, the second time I watched it, because I'm like, that's a really cool detail that I, I just didn't see, didn't notice the first time around. And it kind of got me into the mindset of uh, Jake Geddes as a detective. And then I realized just how good the script was, is building up his methods and the way that he, way that the mystery is built around him and what it's about and just how well thought out that it is in the script. What's your What are your views on Chinatown? Well, I love the film. Uh, I, I Interestingly, I think for different reasons, like you, it's a film that took me time to warm to. But I think that was largely just like, uh, because of my experience, like for whatever reason, almost every time I tried to watch the movie, something happened that would halt my progress and I wouldn't finish it. And I think the final time I did, something still happened. And I was like, I just need to power through this because I keep trying and it's not happening. So I didn't really think too highly of it. And then at a certain point, like I liked it, but I was like, it was very much just like, yeah, it's a good movie. I don't really like, it doesn't inspire much passion to me though. But enough uh, praise existed that I was like, well, maybe I'll give it another shot. And then really loved it and now won't stop rewatching it. Yeah. Um it's interesting you mentioned the watch detail because I'm going to get some of the details wrong because it's been a while, but on the Blu-ray commentary track, it's Robert Town who wrote the film and David Fincher, who's just there to talk to basically. And Fincher's asking about, you know, the watch scene and like different readings of it. Like, is it supposed to be in some ways like, and I, again, I don't remember the exact reading, but you know, something to the effect of like, uh, the way in which that the film is about like sort of like the stunting of LA's growth and like sort of lo- with uh, the uh, John Houston character um, sort of buying up all the land for himself and effectively like halting its development historically to benefit himself. And this is the scene of like time being crushed. Is that some, is there some meaning to that? And, and Robert Towns just like, uh, no, I just needed a way to like, How's he going to know what time? Because, well, he's got this watch and that's it. And he and Fincher have a laugh about it. Um, I don't remember the exact reading, but it's something to the effect of like uh, it being a metaphor for time and progress and how the watch ties into that, which I think is also just an amazing way of like how symbols in movies yeah. and really in anything are so loaded with meaning regardless of the degree to which uh, that might be consciously put in. Um, but I like the what you point out about just the procedural details of it, showing how this guy operates. Because a lot of and a lot of the the first act of the film in particular is just watching Jake do his thing. Right. And there, there's all sorts of like I think about when they're on the the boat together and Jack is looking like he's posing for a photo for his buddy, but really they're taking pictures of um, Mulray, who they're following, yeah. and uh, the woman he's with, and it's just. Uh, again like it's not there's no dialogue saying this is what we're doing you just see that process so i think it's a really good moment that's indicative of a lot of the richness of chinatown which is those sort of little procedural details that aren't really remarked upon they're just shown over and over again and another neat detail too with that with the watch scene 
is that when he does it, he opens up his glove compartment, which is like full of identical <laughs> stopwatches. And so right. clearly this is like one of the, the tricks of the trade that he's that he's very comfortable yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which which makes sense because it's also like how would you know when someone leaves a place unless you just stay there and watch? Right. So it's also just a really economic solution to a a problem. Um yeah, which feels very much like a Robert Town ish invention. Yeah. Um from what I've gathered, he's very known for that in his screenplays, that level of detail. I, I kinda wanna talk about what you mentioned about when you first start getting into really into film and you start going through all the lists and I think because just because I think it's easy to romanticize that time or look back on it nostalgically of like when you know you still had all of these esteemed classics to watch and like everything you watched was you know like this this classic um but in reality a lot of the time a lot of the movies you watch uh, at least in my experience and I think yours as well it's easy for a lot of them to be taken for granted because you're going through so many yeah. and at a certain point sometimes you're just going through the list yeah, that's I absolutely agree with you because there's there's a lot of movies that I've come back to after a number of years and just seen something completely different right? mm-hmm. where at some point, you know, it didn't mean much to me. And then I go back later and either I'm like, OK, I can see now like why it's so revered or OK, I actually love this movie. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's funny. I have one also from the early 70s that I keep going back to and it keeps not totally working, but then I keep going back to it anyway, um, which is another Robert Altman movie to go back to MASH, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, which is a film that I feel like I should love because I love the setting. I love the revisionist take. I love the tone. I love a lot of the performances. And every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good, I guess. But then a couple of months go by and I'm like, maybe I should watch it again. <laughs> like, I keep hoping for that eureka moment. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, yeah. but like it's on Criterion Channel now and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Perhaps it's time for another dip. Um, yeah. so it doesn't work for every movie. <laughs> no, but I keep trying. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting that we both have that too with Chinatown, which maybe is just a coincidence, but maybe it's also reflective of how it's a film that kind of a lot of its pleasures come from those little details. Yeah. So they're kind of ones that you need time with. Right. Um, like it's. I was thinking as you were mentioning his name is uh, Giddy's the fact that one of my favorite little details is just John Huston consistently pronouncing it as gits. Yep. I'd love it. <laughs> Which partly just because John Huston's voice in that role is just like, it's perfect. Oh yeah. Like every line is just like, oh man, he just, ugh. cause he's not like a great actor really, but he's, he's a very good stage presence and certain characters like this one, he's just perfect for. And every word that comes out of his mouth is just like, that's perfect. That's exactly what this person should sound like. Yeah, he's menacing in all the ways that he needs to be for that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet it's charming enough that you get how he gets away with it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I, I get why he's got a free pass. Yeah, great pick. Um, all right, I uh, I guess I'll close this out with uh, my last pick, which comes from The Last Picture Show, which is a film that I'm actually coming up to a rewatch on. I was hoping I could squeeze it in before... Um, to really add more nuance to what I'm going to say. That didn't happen, unfortunately. But it's a moment near the end of the film when at this point in the story, um, the Jeff Bridges character is going away to serve in Korea, I believe, um, to kind of bring it back to MASH. Interesting little coincidence there. But um, there's sort of this this feeling of uh, a changing of time and the sort of uh, 
things will never be the same as they once were. And a certain, like, the elder, one of the elder characters in the film, um, played by Ben Johnson, who's, like, the sort of figurehead in the community, has passed away earlier in the story, and he ran the local movie theater, local picture show, which is, like, one of the only things of interest in this dead-end small Texas town. Um, and towards the end of the film, uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, some of his buddies go to one last screening before he goes away. And as they're leaving, um, Johnson's widow is uh, talking about how she has to close up the picture show soon. She can't. She might have still been able to keep it going if her husband had lived, but he's dead, so there's not enough interest anymore. Uh, kids would rather play baseball in the summer than go see movies, what have you. And Jeff Bridges is and his friend, who I, I forget the actor's name, they're sympathetic. They're not, like, dismissive, but... There's just the way the actors play it and the way Bogdanovich directs it, you really get the sense that, like, this means a lot more to her than it means to them. And to some extent, that makes sense. This is something she's invested her livelihood and life into when she associates with someone she loved who's passed. But there's also a sense that, like, the teen characters don't fully recognize at this moment how significant this moment is. That this really is, like, a end-of-innocence moment, um... And I think that's really reflective of a lot of things. One is just how, you know, we ourselves often don't realize the poignancy of certain moments as they happen, as they occur, oftentimes because they're not the uh, sort of designated life hallmarks of like graduation or, you know, first car or first job. Like it's like, like, yes, those things are important, but it's often just like moments that don't seem significant that in retrospect, you look back on, you're like, that was kind of a a seminal moment. Uh, and then the other thing I think it reflects is just the, the limited perspective of youth where these kids don't, they're not unaware entirely, but they're still a little too self-absorbed and a little too much just into their own lives to really grasp, uh, someone else's experience, which again is a lot of the tension in the film, uh, that embodies a lot of the tension in the film, which is this sort of generational divide in a way that's less pronounced than it is in something like Easy Rider. Bogdanovich has a lot more reverence for um, the old timers, as it were. He wasn't really much of a, uh, a revolutionary. Um, but it does, I think, capture this sort of like, this less conflicted generational clash and this more just like, just near miss, where they're kind of on the same page, but they're kind of not. And they kind of can't be just because of life experience and maturity and perspective. Um, so in some ways, a really big moment because it comes right near the end of the film. And you could very much argue it is the, mm -hmm. sorry, that's my phone going off. It is the crux of the drama of the story, but it's presented in such a small, understated way that I think it, I think it fits for this. That's perfectly said. Like that is, that's exactly it. it I mean, they named it The Last Picture Show for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. That's yes. what the film is named <laughs> after, but even in the way that it is so so understated is exactly like you said. Yeah, it's because we don't notice those moments all the time. Mm. You don't notice the, the changes that are going to come from your life for whatever reason, especially when you're you're that young. Yeah, it's it, even because it's just hard to fathom when you're stuck in a certain place for so long and when you're about to move on from that, it's hard for you to even imagine not having that anymore right mm -hmm. even though even if you come up like you talked about you know big moments like graduation but even then that's such a drastic change that i don't know that a lot 
a lot of kids that age really understand that, even though they're mm-hmm. going through the ceremonies. I don't know that they really grasp just how different their life is going to be in the next in the next year. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Are you a fan at all of the Last Picture Show? Uh, the Last Picture Show, I would say I'm more in the. It's more in the camp of this is like a Chinatown, right? Where I, I watched it, right. and I, it's just kind of like <laughs> okay, sure, whatever. And then I watched, I rewatched it again, but it wasn't that I loved it. It was like a. Okay, I, I get what's going on here and I get why people like it. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. it's one that I'm grabbing onto yet, but interesting. Yeah. Um I was kind of thinking in general, like it was really last year when TCM did their Peter Bogdanovich podcast, but I was thinking generally of like of all the great seventies directors who have kind of floundered in the last couple decades and like their films have been less interesting. Francis Ford Coppola certainly springs to mind. Um, I was thinking though, if like if any one of them could have like one more great film, I think I would want it to be Peter Bogdanovich. In part because, I mean, well, in part because he hasn't made a great film since 1976 or 73, which is when Paper Moon was released. Um, but also because I do feel like his, like Coppola, when people think of him, will automatically think of like The Godfather and Godfather Two and Apocalypse Now. Like his legacy set no matter what. Right. And Bogdanovich feels a little bit more forgotten. I think. Absolutely. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Because the last picture show is probably his most notable. mm -hmm. And even that one's not really in the same pantheon that a lot of these other movies are in terms of, in terms of, you know, world knowledge, worldwide knowledge. Which is interesting because at the time it was right among those films. Like, I want to say like, like this was the year, the year it came out was when French Connection won Best Picture. And I want to say the last picture show was like the biggest competition for taking that. I mean, I could be wrong. I haven't really done the research per se, but based on what I've read and what I've uh, sort of seen, it seems like that was the case. And yet now, like people still remember French Connection, last picture show, not to say like cinephiles know of it, but the general public doesn't really. Yeah, I would agree with um, that. Which, you know, which again, I think in some ways it's reflective of the type of film it is. Like it's a film that is like, it is. It, it paints a very dreary portrait of the time and place it's set, but it does so in a really kind of subtle and understated way. So it's kind of, in many ways, it's a film that's rather apt for this type of podcast, but it's also one that it's easier to take for granted or not celebrate the same way one does, you know, Godfather. Which, to be clear, I do think Godfather is better, so that also helps. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting little film, and I think that, that sort of moment I highlighted is... Uh, in a lot of ways key to the whole thing yeah no i think you summed it up perfectly cool show. okay i think that yeah that wraps us up for another week of cinema in seconds you betcha yeah so thanks for listening to episode three of cinema in seconds um should we tease next week i think we can yeah um since uh we're coming close to the oscars 2021 uh we thought we'd highlight our favorite moments from best picture winning films we could have just done like oscar winning films but that like i mean th- then we could have talked about like suicide squad yeah. and all sorts of stuff <laughs> so <laughs> to really keep it on theme uh only best picture winners uh so we have i guess 91 films to choose from i think that's how many films have won yep, I um think so. 92 if we want to count how the first oscars there was a different award for like outstanding artistic achievement which i guess we can get into those technicalities right. <laughs> if uh if, if we i don't know 
if one of us really wants to talk about Sunrise, but uh, I think it'll be a fun show. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be really good. So, all right. So, uh, thanks for thanks for listening, um, Dan. You want to talk about your YouTube? What what do you got coming up for YouTube this these days on Alibrow Cinema? That's a great question, Ian, and a timely one, as it <laughs> would turn out. Uh, yeah, I think by the time this goes live, I will have posted my next video, which. I will just say is on a Alfred Hitchcock film in part. It's all about other things too, but it's kind of focused on a Hitchcock movie, which uh, yeah, you can find on YouTube under the name Eyebrow Cinema. Perfect. All right. Okay, so I guess uh, I guess we'll sign off. Thanks for listening. I've been Ian, and I'm Daniel, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.